Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Andre Gregory, an actor, writer, producer, and director who is basically a legend. He founded the Manhattan Project Theatre Company in 1968, where he produced Wallace Shawn's first play in 1975, and they continued that collaboration for decades, most famously on screen in Louis Mal's My Dinner with Andre, an art house sensation when it was released in 1991. The trio reunited for a modern dress interpretation of Uncle Vanya, filmed as Vanya on 42nd Street in 1994, that's probably the greatest screen adaptation of Chekhov I've ever seen. And that's just a sampling of Andre's work. He's also just published a marvelous book with Todd London, This Is Not My Memoir, which reads like an artist wrestling with his life, his career, his choices, and his contentment. I read it in a single sitting, and it was a profound pleasure to spend time in Andre Gregory's heart. Andre picked Casablanca, which has somehow never come up on the show before. Made in 1942, Michael Curtiz's studio drama stars Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman as former lovers drawn back into each other's lives in Morocco while the Nazi stain spreads over the world around them. I could run through its cast, I could rattle off its awards, I could tell you how many people cite it as their favorite movie, but ultimately, it's Casablanca. Oh, one quick note. We recorded this in August, remotely, obviously, and Andre had a little bit of a sniffle. He's fine. I checked. This is someone else's movie. I chose Casablanca because I've seen it 16 times. (laughs) (laughs) Good a reason as any. You know, it's it's always hard to say about a work of art. And I think Casablanca is a work of art. Uh, I was watching it the other night and um, instructed by you. And <laughs> Requested. I, <laughs> I was thinking, what is it that is so amazing about this film? Uh, you know, I have an early personal relationship to the movie because I saw it on opening day when I was nine years old. Okay. <laughs> and I'm sure anybody watching this program knows uh, that very famous scene uh, in Rick's cafe when the Germans start to sing um, aggressively um, a German uh, a Nazi song, yes. and Rick, with a tiny little look, gives the orchestra permission, and they they lunge into La Marseillaise. Well, the day that I saw the film, the opening day, the entire audience got to its feet and sang La Marseillaise. You know, because we we were, uh, as I remember, the film began um, began pre production work just after the uh, after the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. Uh, I believe it, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It would be after the release of the film. It would be well. well at um, least Wikipedia says, and I, I did check this, uh, that it mm-hmm. opened, it had its world premiere in November 1942 in New York and was released nationally in the U.S. January 23rd, 1943. Mm-hmm. So it would have been pretty fresh. So um, America and the world uh, were 
at a terrifying, terrifying place when this film was released. Nobody could have known that the Nazis would have lost the war. Uh, nobody could have known that America would have made this huge effort to build tanks and planes and an army, you know. And if, if we had lost the war to Hitler, and Philip Roth, I guess, has written a book about that. Yes. We would have been up Schitt's Creek. I mean, it was terrifying. It was really terrifying. You know, we lived in Paris um, until 1939, I think. And the famous lights, the lamps of Paris, you know, the lights that go over the bridges and yes. the lights, you know, um, those lights went out when the Nazis entered Paris. And there was a feeling here that we would never see those lights go on again, which was a tragic feeling. So we were at a crossroads. We, we, were, uh, we were at a place of little hope, great fear, uh, and this movie came out <laughs> that truly made us hope there was hope. Yes. Not know there was hope, but hope there was hope. You know, so that was, when, that was when I actually first saw the movie. And um, I'm sure since movies are your thing, you know, um, there's no real way to ever say, why do we love this movie? You know, um, Some Like It Hot is one of my favorite movies all the okay. time. But nothing, nothing comes... Uh, nothing comes near Casablanca. I wonder if it isn't that you were that young and that that the experience was that raw of, and of the moment. I mean, I I I'm I was born in 1968. I didn't get to see it until I guess it would have been at least 40 years later. I don't think I caught up until the the early 80s when it first came out on videotape. I didn't get the chance. So you to must see. be younger than me. A little. It's the <laughs> The hairline, I can see how you'd be fooled. Um, but yes, uh, I'm, I'll be 52 when this comes out and didn't get to see Casablanca until my teens and would have related to it then only as an old movie. I liked it. I, you know, mm -hmm. it was strong, but it felt like what it was supposed to be before any of the context was added. It felt like a good studio picture with great performances and a, and a terrific pace right. and a good script. And I appreciated right. all of that. And it wasn't until I got older that I was able to really plug into, uh, and I, I've, you know, I've said this once or twice before, um, you need to have your heart broken a couple of times before you really understand this sort of movie. And it sounds mm -hmm. silly, but it's mm -hmm. true. It's, it's, it's true. It's all theory until you have it happen to you and then yeah. you see it in the actors' faces. And it wasn't until uh, my wife and I watched it the other night and she hadn't seen it in probably 20 years. And I saw it most recently in, in Washington, actually. I, uh, Warner flew a bunch of journalists out to the uh, opening of the Smithsonian's movie theater in 2000, I think mm -hmm. 2011. And they screened their new restoration of Casablanca. And I had the experience of watching it with some idiot behind me doing all the dialogue. <laughs> and I, 
I was going to murder him. I, I got angrier and angrier. It took me completely out of the film. I, you, I could admire the restoration and I knew the movie well enough that I could still sort of see how it had been improved visually. The shadows or this, this lighting had been restored. And then I turned around and it, this, this gentleman would have been, then he would have been in his 70s. He clearly loved it so much and was also clearly in some sort of senility. And I just, it, it made me sad that I had been angry at the interruptions that he was taking mm-hmm. so much comfort from it. And that was something that, that kind of turned my head around too, in a way that I'd never experienced that in a movie theater before that situation of suddenly going from rage to empathy. Uh, Do you know about the audiences that would go to Casablanca and repeat the dialogue? Just along with it or in yes. call and response? Yes. Oh, for a, uh, no? for a, for a long time. Um, uh, I remember when I was at Harvard, the Brassel Theater played Casablanca forever. And audiences, young audiences would go just so they could shout out the dialogue. You know, so a whole audience would be shouting, play it again, Sam. Right. Uh, they'd be shouting, what are the problems of three little people, you know, only come to a hill of beans in a world like this, whatever it is. Yeah. Round up the usual suspects. Really? Um, oh yeah. Uh, it was. It was an underground for a while. It was an underground classic, like the Rocky Horror Show. Uh, yeah, and, I did not know that about this film in particular. And it seems. I mean, it was fairly it won Best Picture and Director and Screenplay. It was really. It was quite well regarded at the time. I didn't think it would have that kind of cult life, but I suppose it's a way of reclaiming it, isn't it? Taking it off the oh, pantheon yeah. and making it yours again. I think for about 10 or 15 years, there were young audiences that would go and shout, here's looking at you, kid, just before he said it, you know, yeah. Oh, God, it would have been awful to try to see that for the first time with that audience, but I suppose- But I have a story about, um, in relation to your interruption, I went- It wasn't um, you. I, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to MoMA, uh, to see maybe Grand Hotel with Greta Garbo. Okay. And um, I was sitting next to two women who kept talking in the movie. And this woman in front of us kept going, you know, turning her head. And finally she turned around and she said, could you please be quiet? And it was Greta Garbo. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone has the right. Yes. Absolutely. I, I want to come up with something clever there, but that's just such a perfect New York moment too. Um, <laughs> I can't top it. I, I do love the idea of revisiting something that you've built and you've, I mean, it wasn't the movie that made her an icon. She was already an icon by the time she made Grand Hotel, but just to see it, just to go and see it in a theater, what is just a lovely opportunity and a strange choice. Well, you know, when you... When, when you when you mention going to see it in a theater, uh, of course, most of the theaters, well, we don't go to any theaters now. No. But most of the theaters, of course, have small screens. And mostly we watch movies at home. But when we did our film of Vanya on 42nd Street in Tor- at the Toronto Festival, we won the audience prize. And 
the prize for winning the audience prize was that you got to see your movie in the largest movie theater in North America. There were five balconies. And as I was looking up at the Manya that I knew so well, that I'd seen so many times that I directed, you know, at these huge images, images that were almost impossible to put together with reality. Uh, it struck me yet again that film is a dream medium, that the images are dreams, but they have to be on large screens for them to be able to show us that they're dreams. And I, I think one of the really interesting things about Casablanca uh, is that it's a dream film. It has strong political um, uh, overture, especially for us now. Sure. Uh, but the way it's lit, the way it's costumed, the sets, the, uh, the, 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 the light in the, the turret of the airplane thing that keeps going around, mm -hmm. Um, we're in a dream. And it's a dream where everyone does the right thing. Everyone acts conscientiously, except the Nazis, but they do what they think is best. And it's, it's a, it's a kind of a, a, a pleasing, comforting illusion of not even illusion. It's a comforting story of Americans doing the right thing to turn the war around, isn't it? I mean, ultimately from it a is. studio's perspective, that's it's gold, right? Uh, yes, but it, came out just after the Hollywood studio heads had refused to stop doing business with the Nazis because there was such good business to be made in Germany, you know, uh, well. and they were Jewish, um, you know, and of course, Lindbergh was a popular figure, um, was it Father Coughlin, who was a he kind was around? Of, yeah, the the moral uh, screedster. How would how would you describe Coughlin? He was, I think, he was a neo Nazi. Yeah, he was pretty much, wasn't he? Before they before they needed to yeah. be neo. You know, yes. What well, what we don't well, we it's hard to remember now was that Madison Square Garden had an event filled with Nazis, American yeah. Nazis. Yeah, Marshall, Marshall Curry has a six-minute documentary about that floating around on Vimeo and, and YouTube. Oh, I'd love, to, I'd love it's, to see that. It's just the footage, and it was nominated yeah. for an Oscar two years ago, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely chilling. Nothing about it feels, other than the, the quality of the cinematography, it could be happening right now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, a film saying, this is wrong. What's going on in Europe is wrong. And we have to do each in our own little way. Uh, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's something that was very moving for me watching the film because as we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people marching for Black Lives Matter right now, um, you know, and as the whole question of voting, yeah. Um, uh, is crucial. There's never been 
an election as crucial as this. Um, the actions of three little people do come to a hill of beans. You know, if you're, if you're out there in the streets demonstrating or if you're trying to make some kind of change, because America had been very self-indulgent, uh, did not want to go to war. Um, and this movie was saying, you have to have a moral compass. Yeah, and uh, Kate and I were talking about this after we, we watched it the other night, and it's, I cannot picture this working with Reagan in the lead, the way he was originally touted for Rick oh, Blaine. God, and no. You need someone, you need someone hard. You need someone like Bogart who come up, who had come up playing villains and heavies. You need to believe there's a chance he won't do the right thing. Yes, yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's the thing that I realized um, as I was watching the movie the other night is um, I was never a fan of bullfights, but I did go to a few bullfights. Okay. And of course, with a bullfight, you know the bull will enter the ring and you're pretty sure the bull will be killed. So the plot is known, but what's thrilling if you like bullfights is how the thing is played. So just as poor Ingrid Bergman didn't know, I don't think until the last day of shooting, whether they were gonna get on that plane or not, uh, which I gather was quite confusing for her. Uh, watching the film, uh, I don't know if you had this feeling, uh, every time I watch it, I think, well, maybe she'll stay with Bogey. Well, you want her to, don't you? I mean, we oh, want you do. Oh, we you, want that. You. No, that. a very, a very common, a very common event, if you want to call it that, is that most of us have known love and lost it, uh, even when we were quite young. Sure. And there, there's something because you know how much those two love each other. And the fact that she does not stay with him and that he makes her leave is heartbreaking every time. Yeah, I think the thing that, that I find so compelling about it, and this time more than, more than most uh, viewings, was that you see the negotiations, you see everybody saying what it is they want to do and what it, I mean, everyone's constantly stating their objectives and desires because mm -hmm. everyone in Casablanca is playing something off someone else. And it's all these rotating tables of, of temptation and, and seduction and, and force and people are constantly imposing their wills on one another. And then Ilsa's decision, whether it's conscious or not to to let Rick decide. I mean, a couple of, of recent reviews, essays have, have said that it makes her a passive character ultimately and that it makes her weak. But if you read Rick's version of it at the end, she's giving him the out of, I'm just trying to seduce you for these transit letters. And they're both, they're both willing to abandon their love for the greater cause. It's just that she never comes out and says it in the film. It's all just yeah. subtext, but it's, 
Bergman is acting. It, it, it's so clearly there that she is. Oh yeah. She doesn't want to be doing the thing she's doing, and and she doesn't want to betray her husband. And she also doesn't want to leave Rick. It's. I think she gives one of the most subtle performances. Um, there was a Bergman movie. Oh, Autumn Sonata. I, I thought she was amazing in Autumn Sonata, but in Casablanca, she's really extraordinary. Yeah. Well, she's doing all of that within the structure of a studio picture that doesn't have any time for it. I mean, the movie does. Curtiz knows what he's getting from her. The way the way every scene is paced, the way that the camera is, you know, she's constantly being given the glamour shot with the with the soft focus. And if you just look at her eyes, is so there's so much there. Yeah, uh, and her hesitations. Yeah. yeah, I, I guess that's what I keep thinking about. When I first saw it, I thought, "Oh, it's a great studio film," and now it feels almost like it escaped from the system. That that the low angles and the lighting feel almost expressionist. There's this sense mm-hmm. that more than most, certainly at the time, you get the feeling, and and it is like ultimately, it's it's not just a feeling; it's true that almost everybody involved with this has a stake in the story. And there are so like, there are so many European refugees in the film, working on the film. There's a sense of the shadow of real life creeping in. Uh, we were really surprised with how many times the phrase concentration camp is thrown around. But then I realized yes. that yeah. it wasn't until after the war that people really redefined concentration mm-hmm. camp as a death mm-hmm. camp. Yeah. Um, and everybody's just talking openly about it because of course they're all in Morocco and it's the forties. They would know the early forties. They know what's going yes. on. Yeah. And then. Yes. This- I, I once, um, I was once in Switzerland for some reason, and I visited, I don't know how this happened. I had tea with a man who had been the head of the Red Cross in Switzerland during the war. And he told me that before he had been the head of the Red Cross, he had visited the German embassy for something. And he'd walked into a room by mistake. And there on the wall was a map of all of the concentration camps. And when he went back uh, to the United States, he tried to persuade people that this was happening and nobody would really believe him except Eleanor Roosevelt. (laughs) You know, when you were were talking about... um, the low angles and, you know, those costumes where everyone who's good is wearing white and everyone who's not good is wearing black and Bogey is wearing black tie. So yeah. he's, in the, he's in the middle there. Um, I have always felt, uh, I paint a lot now, and um, I've always felt that Film, great film is about film. Painting is about paint. What I mean by that is that uh, there was a painting I always loved at MoMA, uh, a Gauguin of six or seven little puppies um, having a bowl of milk. Uh, and I, would ge- I just loved that painting. And I would generally think, oh, how adorable the story of some puppies drinking milk no no the painting is about painting it's about the nature of paint 
It's about how the colors of each puppy go together. And I think something unusual about Casablanca is it's about the nature of black and white 35 millimeter film itself. We are literally seeing in the lighting, the costumes, um, the sets, the nature of film, the nature of great black and white film. I wonder how many people only have seen it digitally. I'm just trying to think of the last time I saw it projected on film, and it's probably oh, that a lot. Yeah. yeah, probably the nineties. I mean, I was very privileged to, I think they only did it for one or two seasons at Radio City Music Hall. Um, for a couple of years, they had a season of great American classics on that huge screen. And one of them, of course, was Casablanca. And I'd always been impressed by the dialogue and the acting in Casablanca, but not about the production effects. And when I saw it on that large screen, one thing I realized amongst many things was that the only time, uh, the only time the two of them, uh, Ilsa and Bogey, share a light together is when they're in Paris. Once Paris is over, they are always in separate lights. I don't know that I'd ever caught that. I'd never caught that <laughs> until I saw it that big and you couldn't miss it. <laughs> you know, some, something else I thought, something else I thought about as I, as I was watching the film is I read a brilliant piece in the Atlantic. I think it's written by a woman whose name is Applebaum. Okay. Uh, She's a, she's a very fine political writer. And Apple. And, yeah, maybe. Is that possible? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I didn't, I didn't know her. Uh, and she was asking the question that so many of us have asked. Why are the Republicans acting the way they are? Why are they so despicable? What's behind that? You know, and... Some of us have thought, well, they want to win an election. They're scared they won't win an election. Or, you know, they're in it for the money. She's calling them collaborators. And they're collaborating with Trump. We have a fascist dictator and a party that is collaborating, um, which is a despicable thing to do, to collaborate. And... Of course, Casablanca takes place at the center of collaboration, yeah. where there are free French, Vichy French, Nazis, people in the middle. But collaboration is a very big issue in the film. And I think it's one of the things that makes the film very relevant for now. Yeah, I, I kept trying to think about the analog for the present day, if there is a way to tell this story in the present. And I don't think there is just because the middle ground has disappeared. The idea that someone could yeah. pretend to be Rick, that Rick could be, you know, Switzerland and, yeah. and stick yeah. his neck out for nobody and have no one bother him. I don't think we have that anymore. And there, there have been, there was a, a recent 
uh, attempt to um, resituate the story. Have you seen uh, Christian Petzold's Transit? It's uh, three, maybe two or three years old. Yes. German that, film. That, uh, I think I did. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. genius of it is that it is essentially the story of Casablanca, but it's modern dress. It takes place in an unambiguously present day, but it's. Oh, well, then I should see it again. I'm yeah. See it again. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. I think it's on the Criterion channel. If you've got that, I'm, I'm sure you do. I do. Uh, <laughs> of course. Um, it's, it's the only way in because you're constantly reminded that all of these issues are absolutely relevant to the present and everything in it is, is fresh, uh, from the question of collaboration and the questions of uh, personal and and political morality. Everything is happening right now. It it never stopped. All of these stories are still very, very real, but I think you need or at least now we need Casablanca to take place in the past because it's, it's easier to imagine a better ending. I don't know that we can have that now. I mean, if you do, uh, like now we're living in the Hill of Beans theory because even if Laszlo and Elsa get out, there, there's another set of media ready to shout them down. You know, the idea was in 1942 is if he gets to people and tells them his story that it will change the course of the war because right. he's such a dynamic figure. And I, and I love the fact that Paul Henry and Bogart hated each other uh, yeah. on, on set because <laughs> he is playing someone who is just such an, every time I watch the movie, I feel a little more sympathetic towards Lazo who has to live with the knowledge of all these things that could have happened and didn't for him to get away. But he's playing it as someone who just doesn't have time for any of it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he's, <laughs> Oh, it's a small cut. He wraps a dish towel around it. He'll, he'll be fine. It's just, yes. everything is an irritation to the mission. And yes. I don't know that I would believe that he would be embraced in the present, like a figure like that would be embraced in the present day because we keep watching people come up and tell the truth and get shouted down. Well, I have to disagree. (laughs) Please inspire me. (laughs) What about that extraordinary Swedish young woman? Uh, Greta Thunberg. Yes. Uh, You know, um, she, in her way, I think, is as powerful as Laszlo. Uh, she's a potential leader who could perhaps change something in the world or at least inspire others to become like her. Did you know, Howard Zen? We were friends. We were neighbors on the Cape. And when Bush was elected a second time, my wife, Cindy, and I were so in despair that we went over to have breakfast with him. And we said, Howard, we don't know what to do. And he said, well, there are two things you can do. His answer was quite surprising. He said, one, make your art. Because art in times of darkness brings light. And he said, two, get out in the streets and demonstrate. Nothing of importance, he said, is ever changed or passed in Washington without action in the streets. It was action in the streets that created the Voting Rights Act. It was action in the streets that ended the Vietnam War. So, if we're going to ask ourselves, what do we do now? No, we probably can't be Victor Laszlo 
it probably wouldn't have any effect. But we can be out in the streets. We can be voting. We can be keeping our mask on. Yeah. It's, uh, again, it's remarkable to me that world history has brought us to a place where people are seeing the idea of uh, caring for other people as a, as a political statement that, with which they disagree, but here we are. And yeah. It seemed, uh, maybe that's part of it too. It just seemed, the, the evil seemed clearer in, in the olden days, in, in, in the days of World War II. You could point to the, you know, it's, it's such a, I think it is my favorite line, uh, the Nazis wore gray, you were blue. It's just mm-hmm. such a clear division and it's Yeah, it's a great line. And cynical. A great line. But, you know, can we say that Trump is less evil than a Nazi? He's killed hundreds of thousands of his own people. Mm. He's destroying climate change. Uh, he's a racist. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I don't disagree with any of these things. My, my issue with Trump is that I have so many, but I don't think, I think the worst thing about Trump is that he's doing all of this incidentally. He doesn't really, like, there's no plan. He's just, no, he's just no. in opposition to a bunch of things. That was his strength as a political candidate as his, and he, he's got no interest. We, we, in Toronto, we went through this with Rob Ford in 2010 and mm-hmm. then with his brother, Doug, they're, they're perpetual campaigners and they're petrally aggrieved. They don't have plans. They don't have goals really other than self-enrichment and, and making their friends comfortable. They just want to complain on the biggest stage possible. And that does absolutely get people killed uh, yeah. Through neglect, through poor policy, through the uh, through the the strengthening of of racist law enforcement po- and and public policy and and all the things that already existed, they they're they're here to make everything worse. But it's not their goal. They just want to yell and have attention be paid to them. And Trump, because he's also very proud that he's never hired anyone smarter than he is, is surrounded by all of these ghouls. Uh, the Stephen Banner. So was so was Hitler. Exactly. Well, I was going to say they're the ones whose policies tend to be the most horrific, and Trump will sign off. I, I suspect will sign off on anything that sounds like something he agrees with. But what you get are these short-lived bursts of destruction. But they ultimately, they sort of, they're like they're a virus that burns itself out. They, it, uh, throughout history, you know, the dictator movements don't last very long unless they get really lucky, like Chile. But boy, can they cause a lot of trouble. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's just watching, uh, watching America, uh, watching a country that I, I am part of, even if I don't live there, and that I believe can survive almost anything, but you never want to see that theory tested. It's just been awful. And this is going to come out in October and we're recording it in August. And I have no idea what that landscape is going to look no. like in two months. Time. No, it's no just, none of us do. It's, it is literally unthinkable that I could think of America and not know where it's going to be, how many people are going to be dead, how many tanks will be in the streets, you name it, because it's already started to happen. But you know, you know, that, that was true of um, Europe, at the time that Casablanca takes place. Nobody, you know, the two get on a plane and fly to America, but will they accomplish anything? You don't know. You know, Rick and Louis, you know, are, are walking down the tarmac 
and they're going to join some kind of organization to fight for a free France. Uh, but will they succeed? Um, the important thing, I think, is to take an action, no matter how small. I think we have to say no to evil when we see it. And that's what's so moving about the Black Lives Movement. You, you know, I, I, I also had a, a, a personal uh, relationship to Casablanca because as we didn't leave France until 1939, we actually, well, you might know this from reading my book, um, we left on the last boat train to London uh, before the Germans invaded Holland. We were outfitted for gas masks. Uh, we crossed the Atlantic on a small freighter whose sister ship was torpedoed. So when I see Ilsa and Victor Laszlo on that tiny little plane going into the fog, I don't even know if they'll land. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that's the, it's the attempt, as you say, it's the, it's the, just him. the yeah. gesture is in the, is in we the must make We must make the gesture. It also feels as though for all the scope of it, the, the fact that all of these massive world events are turning around the characters and turning on the characters' motions and choices, we never see any of it. We there's some stock footage at the very beginning of Nazis marching yeah. and that's yeah. it. Other than that, there's half a car chase and, and a little bit of racing around in, in the dark streets, but it's always about the individuals. It's always about this handful mm -hmm. of people. And there's, I think 22 speaking parts in all, and everyone gets a moment to be defined. And, and many of them were refugees. Well, yes. And that's that, that thing about the Marseillaise is that it's informed by people who were actually invested in that song it's not yes. just an acting yeah. job and we're uh -huh. seeing casablanca now in a time that abhors refugees yeah yeah that was definitely a thought this film is the product of people who uh i was trying to keep track of it curtis had come from hungary um peter laurie fled the nazi regime uh somebody else um oh of course um uh, Conrad Veidt, who plays um, yes. Major Steiner, who's who became famous for playing Nazis, was one of the one right. of the German actors who resisted them most ferociously before he left. Yeah, and, yeah. and Leonid Kinski, mm -hmm. the little barman, oh, yes. slim barman, he was a refugee from the Soviet Union, um, and Madeleine LeBeau, who was in tears singing the Marseillaise. I think, Yvonne, yes. got, I think she got out of France just as the Germans were coming in. I think so too. And um, someone else too, there was one, I, I looked it up and made a note and I forgot it. Oh, Kurt Bois, who plays the pickpocket, uh, Jewish German actor and refugee. Mm -hmm. Everybody, everybody is invested in a way. And, and Claude Rains, of course, was English and English had already been part of the war. And, it just feels like this one moment where all of this could have happened and, and the alchemy of the film is so strangely noble. I don't know how yeah. else to explain no, it. No, but that's, I, a great, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. I have never, I have watched <laughs> Casablanca half a dozen times from top to tail and pieces of it elsewhere. And 
last time, this, this last time is the only time I've actually cried. And it was at the Marseillaise and it was just so inspiring. And I, it's ridiculous. I've seen this film. I know this scene. It's probably the most famous scene. I know the story about um, Curtis just catching a shot of Bogart nodding because he couldn't figure out how he wanted him to react. And just a day later or a day before, I'm not sure when, but said, like, would you just take this, like, while we're doing this one thing, would you just take a shot and nod? And mm-hmm. that's the nod because it doesn't mean anything because that's how easily Rick can do it. Yeah. Uh, Cause he doesn't care. And without that, that scene doesn't work, but with it, Oh my God, I was just, I was in tears and that's never happened before. And that's because I'm different. The film is exactly the same. Yes. It's, that's the great, I mean, that's what I love about cinema. You have dreams and I have the knowledge that I'm a different person every time I revisit something. And that so is everyone else. It's uh, it's the, I, I know I've told this story on the podcast before, but a friend of mine, uh, the late critic John Harkness used to say that his favorite film was the rules of the game because every time he watched it, he would identify it with a different character. Uh, <laughs> because, because this time through, someone else would have a point. Yeah. And yeah. I just, I love that about the art form. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it works with theater as well, right? Because the stories don't change. It's, it's the, the audience is different. Yeah, but I suppose the evolution there is in the performances and in the interpretation. The performances, yeah. And this, yeah, is you know, time. Uh, if one goes to see a Balanchine dance, um, you know how it begins, you know how it ends, you know every step in it. But each time, it's different because you're different. Yeah. Well, in the interpretation, in this case, right, you're watching an artist who can't help but do it their own way. Yes. Yeah. And there, you know, for all of our attempts to recast Casablanca or update it or make it modern, there will never be another combination of, of Bogart and Bergman. That just, it's, you know, it's literally yes. impossible, but it is also yeah. so remarkable to watch happening in the moment. And that the fact that the editing creates tension where there may not have been any before that just the orchestration and the, and the construction of this film is so um, miraculous. Uh, Bogart isn't even quite as great with um, Lauren Bacall, and he's great with her. Yeah. But somehow those two, Bergman and Bogie, yeah. Yeah. I think it's because her default mode in the role, in the role of Ilsa is pleading, mm-hmm. and his is reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have the purest version of want and desire from her and the purest version of, I cannot do this partially because it's my personality and partially because of spite and, and watching, we never get the moment where Rick changes his mind. We don't get to see it. And I think that's mm-hmm. incredible. Uh, yeah. knowing on second and third and fourth viewings, you can look for it and you'll never find it. You'll never find it. No, that right up until that moment, there's a chance he'll, he'll refuse or he'll go with her or he'll betray both of them. Yeah. Yeah. And he never tips his hand. And it's just, again, I think about someone like Reagan who even when he played villains needed to be liked in a way that Bogart mm-hmm. doesn't. Yeah. And you just have this, this incredible force of opposition in Rick that Bogart finds 
that he never gives. He's like he when when he when Rick invites someone to sit and drink with him, they're surprised every time because he's, mm-hmm. you know, he, all this history is communicated in his in his posture. It's nothing he does. It's all just there. No, it's a great great performance. And Bergman's amazing too. I don't want to discount her at all. She's neither of them is. And that was the other thing that struck me this time was realizing maybe it's the speed with which it's performed that all the the dialogue is pretty rapid fire. In the first mm-hmm. half, everything in the club moves very quickly. But I yeah. was thinking that it doesn't feel like anyone is doing, you know, studio golden age movie acting that we're no, used to from that period. All. No, it's something new that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. It's not method. No. Uh, but it is naturalistic in a way that yeah, I yeah. don't think movies were prepared for at the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Maltese Falcon is what, a year and a half earlier? And it's... Yeah. It feels like it's from a decade before. It's right. it's got a it's got a hard uh, like a pulp noir quality to it. It's great, mm-hmm. but it is very much self contained. It, it's not play, playing out in the real world the way that this yeah. is. And, no, yeah. I don't think many of us consider the Maltese Falcon great as it is one of the most beautiful films of all time. The way we do with Casablanca. And it's just part of the continuity of Bogart that the two are constantly put together, I think. But even the films he made shortly after still feel older and more conventional somehow. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the stagecraft Mm -hmm. and the fact that uh, Casablanca was shot in Burbank, but it doesn't feel like it. No. You've got ceilings and roofs and and space. It doesn't feel studio bound. That's part of what makes it dreamlike. There's one other film that I think about a lot because it's deliberately in the style of, uh, it's a film called The Good German by Steven Soderbergh uh, that he made, I want to say around 2005 or six. I don't think I know it. Yeah, it's gone away. It's one one of his studio pictures that no one seems to remember. Uh, And it was the movie he made with Clooney, George Clooney, Kate Blanchett, and Tobey Maguire. And his okay. challenge to himself. Oh, I'll, I'll email you. I was going to send you a link to the Marshall Curry thing so I can oh, just great. add it to okay. the list for you. Okay. Um, wouldn't surprise me if that was sneaking around on Criterion as well. We should take a look. Uh, a film called The Good German, which was his attempt to make a studio picture about World War II. And, and it ends with a race to the airport and it ends with people getting on. It is very much indebted to Casablanca. Mm-hmm. But the twist is that he uses profanity. There's nudity. It, it is a present day movie made in the style of. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's fascinating. I don't know if it works. I've seen it a couple of times now. And he even wanted it to be released in Academy ratio uh, on video. It, theatrically, I think it was matted at 166 to just feel smaller and older. And it's really interesting to watch a contemporary mind deal with a, a story like Casablanca about mm-hmm. people making moral choices and changing their, um, their worlds on a, on a, on a romantic impulse, but also because the world needs them to. But what's really strange is watching a cerebral filmmaker try to tell that profoundly emotional story and just not quite getting hold of it. Yeah. And it's, I think the difference is that, you know, Curtiz has skin in the game. The Epstein's had skin in the game. Everybody making Casablanca knew it was an important film. And did they know that when they were, we're making it? I think you can feel it. I think the conviction is mm-hmm. there. The The studio didn't treat it any differently until they saw it, right? That was the whole, the legend of it. It, was yeah. that it just came up yeah. out of the system. But this unproduced play mm-hmm. had some spark that changed after Pearl Harbor and mm-hmm. everyone responded to it. And maybe 
you know, there's so many movies that were made at that point in time that are kind of empty patriotism. Like everything John Wayne did was, mm -hmm. was demonstrative patriotism, making a story that shows people how important the war effort is. This movie never even mentions the American war effort because it no. started, they no. said it deliberately in December of 41. But it's all about that. It's all, it's the greatest recruitment poster for civil service, I think I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. Did it, I mean, you were nine. How did it, how did it land? What, what came for you? What was the, what was the thing you took out of the, your first experience with it? Do you even remember? No, I was, I was nine. Yeah. <laughs> I well, was nine. All this stuff yeah. going past me as a kid too. Yeah. I, um, I just don't know how much I knew, but there was a lot, you know, there was a lot in our family mm. that, related in a way indirectly to the film. For instance, um, my father and mother had many relatives in the Soviet Union and they wanted to get them out. I think this is in my book too, maybe. You touched on uh, it, yeah. Um, and they wanted to get them out before they left France for England. Uh, and there was a little office in Warsaw where you could go and you could haggle over human beings. You could say, I will give $10,000 if you let my uncle leave the Soviet Union. And they would say, nothing less than 20,000. How about 15,000? So the letters of transit were something I can really identify with. And you were aware of that as a kid. That was yeah. being discussed by... Yeah, I have the, I'm, I'm a generation or two older, but I definitely had the dinner table Jewish, like the dinner table Zionist experience. I was, is how I've been describing it, where people talk about Israel in an abstract term, but this would have been during, and then you look back and realize, oh, I was five and that must've been during the Yom Kippur war and I wasn't even aware of it. Right. But I think, I think Casablanca works that way because it is about, people in rooms instead of a war theater there's there's no mm -hmm. larger scale it's just down to individuals and individual decisions I mean, we've talked about this i don't want to repeat it um for the podcast but it is it's so intimate and so immediate that way um maybe that's it maybe the connection is because it's not a big war movie it's just about people the other thing um the other thing that i was thinking when i watched it the other night is for me it has the quality of a fairy tale even though it's about very real life-changing serious issues there's a kind of fairy tale aspect about rick's place and the vichy police and um, i don't know just i had a feeling of a fairy tale yeah. Is it because Strasser never actually does violence to anyone? And he's he's sort of an ogre in a in a way that he's be, yeah. I kept I kept this time through I was surprised that the the Nazi violence is just non existent. They're, yeah. they're simply there as a threat. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately Rick kills Strasser, but again, that's an unambiguous heroic act that he's also has no choice. He's he's boxed himself in that way. It, it's it's what allows the plane to leave. It's what lets Rick and Louis run off to, to the resistance. And it is the first 
action that Rick takes. Even letting them go and giving them the letters isn't really an action. It's sort of an agreement. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, this is a movie that takes 98 minutes for Humphrey Bogart to do something. And <laughs> when did that ever happen? That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's a, it's an odd question to ask of you now, but the podcast tends to angle back towards influences and, and I'm trying to figure it out from your work. I don't really know how it might, but just in case it does, is there anything of Casablanca that you have used or borrowed or stolen entirely for your own work? Uh, well, I would, I would say the only, the only thing is in, in all of my productions or films, every single actor is terrific. <laughs> and that's all <laughs> you. <laughs> Doesn't matter how big the role or how small, you know. Mm. Uh, I, I, I don't know if, if that was an influence, uh, but I was, uh, you know, we lived in Hollywood during the war and um, uh, I was very influenced by Hollywood actors because I knew some of them. You know, I knew Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone and the Marx Brothers. And, uh, you know, so Hollywood movies were kind of a part of my childhood. But no, I don't, I, I wouldn't say, um, well, I went into the theater to direct musicals. And somehow I went astray. <laughs> uh, but a very strong thing in me, whether it's directing a play of Wally Shawn's or Beckett or entertain, mm. keep entertaining the audience, not for any kind of cheap reasons, but because you're a storyteller. And when you're a storyteller, you have to keep the audience on the edge of their seats. My thanks to Andre Gregory, whose new book, This Is Not My Memoir, is available now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Thanks also to Nicole Dewey. She knows what she did. Andre's on Twitter at TheAndreGregory, all one word, and it's great. And of course, you can find Casablanca on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment in a multiplicity of special editions. It's also available on Apple TV and Google Play and streaming on HBO Max in the US and Hollywood Suite in Canada. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. Go check them out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. I'm really enjoying Paradigm, a new series hosted by Stephanie Phillips that's never quite what you think it's going to be. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 